Hello and welcome to the Resurrected Bunker Panel Show, back for our nearly monthly gathering to talk about the weirder side of politics. I'm Jacob Jarvis and on this edition we're going to be discussing the evolution of macho politicians. Plus, how has love turned increasingly political? With dating apps meaning people can choose to never swipe right on a Tory, let alone kiss one, is that a good or a bad thing? Joining me today, I have the author of Escape, Oh God What Now regular and perpetually online younger millennial, Marie LeCant. Hello Marie. Hello. I like that you call me a younger millennial, which I think I'm not technically, but also to anyone listening, I am. Yeah, yeah. Well, as long as they're not watching the video, they can agree that you're definitely younger. She's, she's practically Gen Z. SPF every day. <laughs> Marie, you're working on a podcast discussing political scandals. What has been your favourite to research so far? So I think, oh God, I mean, it, it's really hard to pick, but I think the story that's really stuck in my mind, so, so we're doing an episode, spoiler alert, on alcohol in Parliament, the kind of role of boozing. And, you know, there's one, so it was in the 60s, so really not that long ago, but, you know, MPs used to get so drunk and the, the Speaker of the House of Commons once came back to the chamber after dinner, hammered, tried to get into his chair, failed, <laughs> tried to get into his chair again, <laughs> failed, fell on the clock's table with his wig at an angle. Um, and then the, the Tory chief whipped shouted, he's, oh, you're a disgrace, Horace, and I'll have you out of that chair in three months. Uh, at which point, Horace kind of turns around and goes, how could you get me out of that chair? I can't even get into it. <laughs> <laughs> then in the other expert corner today, we have got evolutionary anthropologist and Y presenter, Anna Machin. Hi, Anna. Hiya. Anna, you recently presented an episode of Why about sex with robots. Are we all <laughs> going to be getting robo-snogs in the near future then? <laughs> Do you know what? I don't know whether it's disappointing or not disappointing, depending on your point of view. Probably not in the near future, no. Um, our guest was very clear that maybe, you know, some very advanced um, sex toys are in our near okay. future. But yeah, actually having full-on sex with a robot is probably quite a long way away. What did you discuss around the the sort of ethics of it rather than just the, the practicalities of it happening? Uh, sex, for most people, is more than just the act itself. It's about emotion, it's about connection, it's about all those sorts of things. And, and uh, obviously, I study the human brain and human relationships, and I struggle to think of a robot that would be able to form those connections without sort of a wet biological brain in its head. So there are ethical concerns there about people maybe replacing real-life human relationships with sentient beings with a robot and that would definitely be costly to their mental and physical health so it's a bit of a tricky one i think maybe it's one of those things where if you want to have it on the side go for it but if you're going to replace your real life relationships then that's going to stop being a bit troubling yeah. we're going to have to make sure it's more than the robot's brains that are wet as well so there's, there's all sorts oh, of yeah, all sorts indeed. of mechanical issues to work around <laughs> So happy you said that because I thought it in as I'm not going to say it. I'm just not going to say it. So thank you for being worse than me. Finally, I am joined today by Mr. Podmasters himself, Andrew Harrison. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Joff. Andrew, you've listened to even more Y episodes than anyone else here. What is your favourite that's coming down the pipeline? Oh, how can you make me choose? It's a it's a really great series. This is our new science series where we kind of each each edition asks a question from the frontiers of knowledge, and uh, we've got loads in the can actually. Uh, how can we stop our bodies aging? Uh, why? What is at the Earth's core, and can we use it? Are we the first intelligent life on Earth? Uh, there's one which is actually looking at 
the properties of consciousness that might exist in inanimate objects. It's called panpsychism. It discusses the idea that consciousness might not just be a product of our wet brains, Jeff, <laughs> but it actually might be something that's kind of imminent in reality itself. This is the thing that appears in his dark materials, in the Philip Pullman books, the note, the idea that it, and it might not just be in a kind of abstract, philosophical, quasi-religious thing, but you know, consciousness might be kind of innate in all reality. I find that truly mind-blowing. But then we also have such episodes as Why Do I Like Spicy Food? So it's very, very, from the really out there to the extremely practical. And um, But of course, all my favourite episodes are presented by Anna because she's here now. Obviously. Yeah. They're all yeah, the best absolutely. ones by mile. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> The pseudo-macho and undeniably toxic culture of Downing Street under Boris Johnson has been exposed in full force through the COVID inquiry. Dominic Cummings' let's say wide-ranging use of expletives showed the horror show way the government was run. Although Johnson's former chief advisor denied any messages he sent were misogynistic because he was horrible about men too. Either way, the vibes around Downing Street clearly were off to say the least. But everyone involved was supposedly a high-achieving, highly intelligent adult. So how did the group dynamic devolve to this? Marie, all of that testimony was very dramatic and felt shocking. But is this actually more normal than we think in politics and not really a particular feature of the Cummings-Johnson regime? Um, I, I, yes and no. So I think I, I have definitely spoken to kind of like number 10 aides who worked through different kind of iterations of of number 10 in the past kind of 14 years. And, and they've definitely said that specifically that number 10 was very, very bad. So even within the very specific context of number 10 Downing Street run by a conservative government, the Boris years were especially bad. It is probably quite a widespread problem in whatever industries are left that don't really have an HR system. So I think yeah. that, you know, politics in general, and I think you see that um, in the commons, etc. So, you know, you, you see that in politics more broadly, I think people behaving badly. Um, so, so yes, I would say I, I think it is genuinely just kind of an HR problem where most industries, to their credit, have changed, even the ones that used to be quite feral in the kind of like 80s. So like the city eventually went, hmm, Hmm, maybe we should have professional standards. Yeah. Uh, but then, yeah, a, a few of us are still standing strong and going, nah, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> well, so it seemed to me like the, the sort of workforces where people become managers without actually getting trained to manage, it just becomes hierarchical. So yeah. you see that in politics that people just have experience and become higher up in politics without actually being trained to manage people or politicians or civil servants. And the same in journalism. If you're a really good journalist, you suddenly become an editor. But that's mm. a completely different skill set to actually dealing with human beings, isn't it? Do you think that it also might be because this is such a strange and peculiar job, particularly the kind of the, the senior spats, mm. there's almost no objective criterion that you can apply that, that, that you know, there's no not a great deal of precedent out there. So you, these people devolve to, well, he's a Rottweiler. He just won't let it go. He's brilliant. He's a killer. He's a demon. Just, you know, the idea that personality and dedication and ferocity mm. are kind of proxies for the actual skills you might need to do this I do, I do also sincerely think, and, and it's not just like to like the people who actually did it, because I think that's not what they had in mind, but I think the thick of it really, really ruined a whole generation of especially men in <laughs> politics. I have been shouted at down the phone by kind of like press advisors and like, you know, heads of comms and stuff and being like, you are trying to be Malcolm Tucker. Like you are screaming at me, but I'm not intimidated in the slightest because you are doing an act. Like what you're doing is what you you feel you ought to be 
doing to a journalist. Can you shut them up by saying, sorry, I'm only giving that two Malcolms out of a possible eight Malcolms <laughs> and they get really ratty? Um, and yes, yeah, so, so I do think it's also kind of the cultural thing. If people watch the thick of it, they, they, they kind of see the portrayal of politics from the outside. And then once they go in, they're like, oh, well, I have to be like the big boy. So I have mm. to do the shouty thing. And, it's like, and generally, 90% of the time, it's like, you just sound a bit silly. Anna, a lot of people are clearly quite horrible, as we've established <laughs> in this world and in politics. This is quite a wide one here, though. But so, yeah, does anything chemically underpin being vile from a sort of evolutionary <laughs> biological perspective? Not necessarily being vile. Now, you don't get like a lovely dopamine here or anything from being vile. But actually being vile, obviously, it's remained in our species, so it's evolutionarily adaptive. Um, people who are vile tend to be quite good at climbing the hierarchy mm. because they don't really give a sod about who they hurt on the way and who they stamp down. And obviously, from an evolutionary point of view, the higher up you are in the hierarchy, the more successful you are, the more reproductively successful you are. I mean, let's look at Boris, crikey. And, you know, <laughs> you, you get access to all the resources first. So you want to be at the top of the hierarchy. And if you can get there by being revolting, great. All you've got to be careful of is making sure that you're not so revolting that you can't take people with you. Because one okay. of the things about being in the hierarchy is you have to have a, a lot of alliances to keep you there. So you have to kind of get that very fine balance of being a really charismatic leader, which Boris was. He is was and is a charismatic leader, definitely. He's very mm. good at being a, being a totem, being an icon around whom people gather. But you have to get that very fine balance to not be too disgusting that actually people start getting a little bit of a conscience or realising that being associated with you is actually bad for their reputation. So it's a really fine balance. But yeah, certainly being vile is is a really good idea. Is this part of the Cummings downfall then, the kind of Rasputin syndrome in that like when you've only got the ear of one powerful person, it doesn't take, suddenly they all want to throw you under the ice because you've only exactly. got one ally. He yeah. did not have his alliance around him. We know from chimpanzees, you know, the way you get up in chimpanzee <laughs> politics is have your alliance, be Machiavellian. And whilst he probably thought he was being really Machiavellian, unfortunately it doesn't work if you're just a lone person doing it. Yeah. So his problem was, yeah, only Boris was in allegiance with him. Whereas Boris obviously had a lot of people protecting him and supporting him and still does to a certain extent. So he was managed to maintain his position at the top of the hierarchy for much, much longer. And a lot of the characters that we, we've been talking about and that we hear about in these kind of contexts are men generally. Is there anything particular to men to have evolved into this sort of way? I suppose we can go back and blame a little bit on testosterone, obviously. Okay. Testosterone makes you more aggressive. It makes you much more likely to want to compete with others, particularly other males, for position. But a lot of it is probably quite cultural as well. The fact that we are a patriarchy still and politics is still very much a male domain. Mm. And I think, you know, we have had this history of, of, of men behaving like this and it being acceptable. Whereas if a woman behaves like this... You know, I mean, Margaret Thatcher was, you know, said to have, you know, got balls of steel and things like that. She wasn't mm. seen as female because she acted in what was seen to be quite a male way. So I think it's a real split between culture where men are allowed to behave like this, whereas female politicians, it's frowned upon to a mm. certain extent. And also the fact that, yes, you've got all this testosterone raging around um, and that will make an environment where you've got a predominance of men much more aggressive and much more focused on competition than it would be necessary if it was more sort of female biased. When you talk about competition there, is there also something in terms of people being horrible that it, it could be associated somewhat with risk taking too? And that risk taking is something we've had to do evolutionary to get to where we are? 
absolutely. Risk taking is, is critically important because risk taking is the area from which we get creativity. So as a species, we wouldn't have survived if we weren't willing to take risks. The reason why we are the predominant species on the planet is because we've taken risks and therefore we've created and we've innovated and we've pushed boundaries. So it is very important, though being particularly unpleasant, it's obviously a majorly risky game to play mm. because at some point with most people who are really unpleasant, they will get their downfall at some point mm. and because they will push it too far because they will lose perspective on what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. So it is a really big risk, but for some people, they manage to remain in power for you know, a long time being particularly unpleasant because they have such levels of control. So if you look at someone like Putin, for example, he has such amazing control over everyone around him and around the narrative in the country. So, you know, he has been able to remain in that position and be quite intimidating, quite aggressive without actually being removed. But it is a really risky thing to do. But yeah, risk is absolutely essential for creativity. Marie, is some part of this as well when it comes to being a successful politician that being bad simply kind of stands out more than being good. Being polite is expected to be the norm. So it doesn't stick out with people in the same way. So, you know, we see this from Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, even Suella Bravman at the moment. They're getting so much airtime and oxygen because they they step away from what we would expect from them. Oh, um, so I realise that I can't just start every single answer with, well, yes and no, but I will. <laughs> I can and I will. Um, but no, no, yes and no. Because I, I do think actually, you know, when you look at MPs, the ones who most of the time actually do well and go go up through the ranks, et cetera, and, and are broadly liked, like, they're all nice people. You know, are they kind people? Not all of them, I would say, but they're definitely nice, polite, helpful people. And that's how, you know, and I think, no, I've written a lot about it in my work, but I think you see it in terms of how journalists cover politicians as well. And obviously, that's a massive part of who goes up, who goes down, I think, whether the press likes you or the press decides to go, you know, go out kind of all guns blazing against you. Um, and that's usually, you know, the, the difference is often generally, is this MP pleasant to deal with and respectful? Or are they a bit of a dick? And, and in which case, you know, you'll have no problem kind of going for them. So, so not, so, so I think maybe in terms of, you know, rhetoric or in terms of, yeah, giving very punchy quotes or stuff like that. But I think on a basic human level, it is actually quite rare. I think Boris Johnson, for example, was kind of an exception. Like, it is quite rare for... MPs who are dicks to other MPs to actually get very far, um, which is good, maybe. Yay! <laughs> Anna, we've spoke about people getting to a kind of precipice of being horrible and then it, they push it too far and they, they lose their position through it. Why haven't the rest of us evolved to just have a lower threshold for tolerance for for wankers, basically, <laughs> and for being able to spot this and go, oh, clearly they are... They're trying to vie for position here, so I'm not going to. I'm not going to let them do that. I think some of us do have a major like wanker filter, <laughs> and some of us are really, really good at it. But obviously, not everybody. And also, if you can grab on the tailcoats of one of these people, let's say you yourself are not vile enough, or whatever you are, you don't bring enough to the party to actually get to the top yourself. If you can hang off the tailcoats of this person, you can get pretty close. Okay. And so, for some people. Being in that alliance and being with that person is, from an evolutionary point of view, beneficial. So you're not going to completely get rid of of people who will, yeah. You know, and these people might even recognise this person is a wanker. Mm. So it's kind of but, like when you're at school and people hang out with the bullies to make exactly. sure they don't. Exactly. I mean, bullied. I remember at school talking to the best friend of the school bully one day and saying, "Well, why?" And she went, "Oh, I don't even like her." But it's better to be on her side than not. Yeah, yeah. 
And so I think these people who follow him might even know what he's like and know it's unacceptable, but they are getting to a certain position which they wouldn't get to otherwise because of it. Mm. Andrew, all of this is emerging because obviously in context of the COVID inquiry, it's been investigated because it was the, the way it was yes. all handled was a complete and utter failure. But would we have just ignored all of it if if it was successful? Do we allow people to be so horrible as long as they, they get results? Well, the question arises if it's been a fantastically successful world-beating approach to the COVID pandemic, as the government told us it was, would we be having an inquiry at yeah. all? Would, the, would these people be being brought to light? Um, you know, the, the, the counterfactual where that happens is very hard to imagine, though, considering the cast of characters. Observing the way that Cummings and, and, and Lee Kane all behaved, it very much seems like... These were the kids who are hang- would be hanging out behind the bully, quite far behind the bully, attempting to impress the bully <laughs> with their their foul language and their performative aggression. I mean, Cummings himself is by any measure a weedy, nerdy brainiac. And he tries to behave like the guy in the prison yard who marches over and punches the hardest guy. There's something bizarre and kind of psychologically both fascinating and repulsive about it. They're all beaters trying to play alpha. Mm. And of course, you know, what you really want in people in those positions is people who don't sort of follow the alpha, beta, playground, dog pack mentality, but have some sense of public service and some idea that there's a higher goal here than you being able to call Matt Hancock a fuck pig or whatever he did. Yeah, A bizarre choice of words by that. I still cannot get over that bizarre choice of an insult because the background to fuck pig is very, very strange and very, very horrible. It's And I think it also brings to mind the image of a useful fuck pig. <laughs> I know that it had to be useful. <laughs> Anna, in a in a strange way, though, the way we gravitate towards these horrible characters, on the part of the people who do that, does it almost show a kind of empathy in the sense of that we like to align ourselves to the way other people behave and we like to gravitate towards a sort of group norm? So is there some sort of negative side of empathy which plays out by us associating with these people? Oh, completely. I mean, we always say empathy and emotional intelligence are like a really, really good thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you're, if you do management courses, you have management courses in emotional intelligence and all we all want our kids to be emotionally intelligent. But actually, it obviously has a dark side because if you're, for example, if you're a psychopath, psychopaths are highly emotionally intelligent, but they use that ability to understand other people so they can screw with them. So emotional intelligence is not necessarily a good thing, but but you will get people in power who have high levels of it, which they use towards their own end, unfortunately. <laughs> The left-wing adage of never kiss a Tory is one which Keir Starmer himself previously revealed he doesn't live by. I'm afraid I've broken that rule. I'm not tribal. I'm on very good terms with many Tory MPs. I'm not ashamed about it. And I've got very good friends who are Tories. And they've been very, very good friends of mine for a very long time. And I happen to love smooching them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. He he didn't say the last bit. I did make that up. But I promise the rest of it was actually, in fact, a a quote. The thing is, in in an age of meeting people online, more and more people are able to, unlike Keir Starmer, steadfastly stick to rules like never kissing Tories. With the initial point of dating being reduced to analysing people upon basic information on a screen, we now know people's leanings politically far quicker than we might have in the past, with apps allowing people to express if they are either liberal or conservative.
conservative. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? Marie, in 2020, there was the OKCupid survey that said 2.7 million people could not date someone who has strong political opinions that are the opposite of theirs. And there is a matchmaking platform called MyTie and its founder built in a function so people could select free deal breakers to dismiss potential partners off the bat. Someone who voted Tory was chosen by 60% of people who uh, who picked one of those options. Do you really think people are making the choices in that way beyond the just binary, are they hot or not? Or are they also in their own way just kind of politically signalling themselves and they respond to these kind of surveys and speak to people about the way they choose their partners? Mm. I don't know. So I, I, I think so. I'm, I'm um, for context. I'm a bit of an anti-dating app ultra. I've written about it several times. <laughs> I, I think they've kind of ruined everything that's fun about dating. One of the reasons is because I think you know when you're on a dating app, you end up being confronted with you know sort of like you know hundreds, thousands of potential matches, and the only way you can try to get through them without going mental is picking, you know, kind of like endless criteria. So you keep, like, your brain keeps having to come up with reasons to basically not swipe on someone, otherwise you're going to end up being very overwhelmed. So that's how I think you can end up with really stupid things saying, you know, oh, well, you know, he had a picture posing with fish or something, and I think that's tacky, so I didn't swipe, or et cetera. So you do end up, I think using narrow, narrow criteria. And I think politics is probably one of the obvious ones of saying, oh, well, you know, I guess I'm left wing. So yeah, that, that's the thing that that's one thing why I can reduce the number of potential matches further. Whereas, you know, I, I feel like, and that's potentially, to be fair, a result of me kind of moving in quite politically involved circles. But I know lots of people, you know, one person is left wing, another another is right wing, and they're very happy. And I, and I suspect that lots of the people who said, well, I could never date a Tory, almost certainly would, you know, if presented with the right Tory. And it's also, I think, um, I, I, I don't know. I think, A, a there's there's you know, kind of a world of difference, I think, uh, between someone who's like a kind of, you know, right-wing Lib Dem slash Cameroon and someone who is literally like, Suella Braverman is the woman for me. <laughs> um, but um, I think I would argue that values matter a lot in relationships. You, you do need to have similar values, but I'm not convinced that politics always entirely overlaps with values. Mm. Is it just an aspect of online culture now as well, that it's kind of transformed us all into to sleuths and that we dig around about anyone we interact with. So, you know, it doesn't really matter whether someone says outright, I'm liberal or I'm left wing or I'm a Tory. You'll dig right into their profile for little weird aspects about them anyway. And we do that to all sorts of people online. It's just a facet of online culture now, isn't it? Uh, it is actually. I, I was thinking about that really recently. Um, where so I, I, I met a guy a few uh, weeks ago and kind of hit it off. And all I had was a first name and someone I thought he knew. And from that, you know, I managed to get a tremendous amount of information. Yeah. And then I was like, "Is that creepy? Is that is this weird?" Because I, I sort of, you know, and as you point out, I, I did it entirely without thinking. And to be fair, I would argue I think it's not just for potential like people you'd like to date or whatever. Like, I do that to kind of everyone yeah. I find interesting in any way. Now, as you know, I've LinkedIn stalked people, and I'm like, "Why am I doing this? Like, why is that?" Oh. Interesting. You went to that university. Oh, you did an internship in 2012. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> but I, I don't think that's inherently a bad thing. I think, you know, it is good that we're a very curious species and we've just got given tools to kind of really, really uh, indulge in that curiosity. So mm. I think, you know, that it's probably creepy, but also fun. So who's to say if it's good or bad? Does it lead to people cloaking who they are, though, which I, I would suggest is quite an objectively bad thing. I've heard the term woke fishing, for example, has hmm. been a thing where people sort of pretend to be more woke than they are. 
I yeah, I, I think the weird I think there's a slight irony there, and I think woke fishing is absolutely a thing. What I find weird about woke fishing and stuff like that is that actually a, like humans are kind of like we're just a social species. So I think we we there, there, there's no such things. For example, there's like me as a kind of a totem of like this is me, this is who I am, and everything I believe. Like in isolation, that will always change slightly depending on who I talk to, mm. and you know, and then what what I kind of want to project. And that doesn't mean I'm a liar or I kind of hide myself. I think we all do that because again, you know, we are inherently social. Um, but also, I think people change a lot. Um, you know, depending on who they date. So I think even someone who's maybe woke fishing because he really fancies a left-wing girl probably will end up becoming more left-wing if they date and they stay together. Anna, this selection process that we're speaking about, is it a fairly simple evolution of picking traits that we've already done? Or is it more convoluted that? Has it fundamentally warped the way that humans select the traits they use to pick partners? What's really interesting is on the surface, it's definitely changed the way we do that because these apps and the sites make us reduce ourselves to certain categories. That's Mm. how they work. So there's no subtlety. It's very black and white. You have to tick the box. And so it's made us not only categorize ourselves, but categorize other people and produce a list of the perfect partner that we think we need. However, if you actually look at the people people end up with, it's very different. So there's an amazing study done a few years ago that showed that 67% of people who met online ended up with somebody who ticked none of their top five criteria. Mm. So we think that we've changed the way we date, but actually when you look down to who people end up with, we haven't at all. You know, human dating, human mating is the same as any mammalian mating. It's been around for millions and millions of years. And somebody coming up with an app on your phone is not actually fundamentally going to change how people ultimately are attracted to each other. But when we do meet someone in person, do biological senses then come in and kind of override our logical red lines that we might have put in place when we were looking at, as you say, someone as a sort of grouping of statistics? Absolutely. You know, your brain is the ultimate dating machine. So you take in loads of information about your senses, what someone looks like, what they smell like, what they sound like, what they're talking about, all these sorts of things. And this amazing algorithm runs in your brain and out comes the answer. And if it's a ping, yes, absolutely, this person is for you, then this is all in the unconscious brain. Then we get lots of lovely dopamine, oxytocin, all that lovely stuff. And that makes you go and start talking to that person and make the effort. So absolutely, all those lines, all that just goes out the window and In those first nanoseconds, your instinct takes over. Now, later on, when your conscious brain kicks in, you might start to think, oh, my God, they're, you know, a lefty and I'm right or whatever it might be, or they're uber religious and I'm not. But that doesn't, because you've learned who they are in all their subtleties, that doesn't necessarily mean that that is an absolute deal breaker for you any longer. Your brain is always going to be the best way to assess whether someone's good for you. If you try and do it online, you get none of that sensory information. You get none of the neurochemical help. And also it's really easy to lie online and all the cognitive mechanisms you've evolved to enable you to spot a liar do not work well online. So being in the room is really the only way to truly assess if that person's for you. Sorry, I'm like, I'm just laughing silently in the studio because like, you said use all your senses and I'm just loving the idea of turning up in a bar and just kind of like licking someone's arm. Do you know something? Kissing, so important. You get so much information oh, yeah, no, yeah. from saliva. Find out if they're a smoker or not. <laughs> yeah, kind of yes, exactly. But so if they had a curry. So I'm not, no, I'm not suggesting that you necessarily start licking in the first 10 minutes. So licking... Uh, tongue use, uh, very important. <laughs> Sniff them, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, just get, yeah. Like, like a dog. Sniffing is really wash. good. Yeah. Sniffing gives you a lot of it, particularly if you're a woman, because it tells you whether you're genetically compatible or not. Oh, wow. Oh, Interesting. Yeah. 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 
Andrew, you were fortunate enough to find love before online dating, oh, yes. back when it was just going into <laughs> polytechnic student unions and licking people, I yes. imagine, was what it was like back in those those days. Do you think that this might have shaped how you picked your partner? Had you been on well, the, um, in the online but, world? Well, my, my wife and I got together uh, in the in the before times, in the olden days. We used the amazing technology of the time, which was alcohol. And uh, <laughs> we all celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary next weekend. So Woo! yay us. It worked out in your face technology. Um, but I don't think it would have worked on an app at all. Her politics are not the same as mine. Uh, I think she's more left than she thinks she is. I think I'm possibly a little bit more right than I think I am but um, yeah we're not the same and we don't have the same interest I mean she hates everything I like uh, with a handful of exceptions you know um, food and half man half biscuit and pretty much everything else is yeah. completely different um, but yeah it, 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 you, I think there probably is an algorithm that could work that out it's not simply a tick box but I, I think it would be unlikely Anna, I remember a long time ago when we spoke for the bunker. You spoke mm-hmm. to me about how, you know, in, on the kind of how women can sense, you know, from kissing the the biological compatibility that it's sometimes about complementary but different biological traits. So, yeah. can sometimes someone's personality be you know, complementary but different to yours be indicative of that on a biological level as well so is that why we kind of as andrew says that his wife doesn't like any of the things he likes and he's not interested in her interest in the same way but somehow they're complementary to one another do you know what it's really this obsession with similarity in a way comes from dating apps because that's why that's how they do it basically it's really basic Mm. they do it by similarity and actually when we look at what goes into attracting people to each other in terms of who's successful long term similarity isn't that that big a thing yes similarity in things like values is important um and in for example ideas about raising children for example but Actual similarity in terms of personality and that kind of thing. No, it is about being complementary. Whether or not it indicates anything about genetic compatibility is another question. Personality is really complicated when it comes to genetics. But there are certain genetic compatibilities that we look for, and certainly those are what come through in terms of smell. Marie, what are your political dating red lines then, on a final note? And is someone being apolitical, perhaps, just uh, can that be just as big an issue to, to people when dating? I think it is the thing, right? Like I've actually, I think if you'd asked me sort of 10 years ago, it'd be like, I have so many political red lines. Um, but, you know, since then, I've, yeah, I've ended up, you know, I've even dated a card-carrying Tory member. So not even a voter, someone Oof. who actually, I know. That's kind um, of hot. There's only about four of them, so we can probably <laughs> identify who that is quite quickly. <laughs> yeah, he was 77. <laughs> we had a great time. Uh, yeah, he's dead now. Mystery uh, girl. <laughs> Um, but 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 you know, and I, and I think but that's the beautiful thing about I don't know, kind of like dating around, and and I think trying to keep an open mind. Where I think there are lots of people I've dated who, for whatever reason, beforehand I would have been like, oh, I'd never date someone who you know like X or Y or Z, mm. um, and actually you no, know, ended up having a lovely time with all of them. So I think the only thing really is I, I could not date someone who is right wing on social issues. So be that you know like abortion, gay rights, trans rights, etc. Like mostly because you know I'm a woman, I'm very pro abortion and I've got lots of gay and trans and queer friends so I think nights out would be complicated <laughs> but also they yeah. would actually have to be against sex before marriage anyway so it'd be really shit so that yes no exactly so I think yeah that, that's probably the only like real you know absolutely would not even consider it would not even have a drink 
um, because there's no point. But aside from that, not really. Um, so actually, no, apolitical, I'm not sure I could. And I knew that for a fact, because in 2015, I had a successful date with uh, some guy who worked in the arts. Uh, and we kind of like woke up at mine. Um, and I woke up and I looked at my phone. He was still asleep. And I saw the Edstone. It was the morning of the Edstone. So Ed Miliband had unveiled the kind of Edstone. And I was like oh my fucking God, what the fuck is that? That is insane. They're going to lose the election. So I kind of like tapped him on the arm and I was like, wake up, you've got to see this. Um, and he looked and he was like, what? Like, what? And yeah, he's just a nice boy who worked in the arts and I had no idea. I probably barely knew there was an election that was that. And I remember that day incredibly clearly. I was like, no, okay, this is my line. I've got to be able to wake someone up and go look at the Edstone Labour's gone mental. <laughs> Finally, it's time to have a quick chat about what we're reading at the moment in our nearly monthly Bunker Book Club. Andrew, I know you are generally always reading books for the Bunker, in yeah. fact. So what are you reading read, to I'm, present I'm, a Bunker episode about? I'm reading all the books you make me read, Charles, so <laughs> thanks for that. Um, I'm, I'm reading, uh, at the moment, I'm reading Jane Matson's uh, very interesting You May Never See Us Again about the Barclay Brothers, the strange Barclay Brothers, which is very, very peculiar. Um, but there is a, there's, there's some news you can use for the uh, for the for the listeners, which is... Uh, as regular listeners may know, I'm quite a comics guy, and there is an incredible sale on at the 2000 AD web shop where you nice. can get the classics of Judge Dredd for 50% off. This is like a 20 quid graphic novel for 10 quid. So I've literally just spent 100 quid on 200 quid's worth of old Judge Dredd's. Go there right now. It'll change your life. I think with that advert, we might we might sell them out. Absolutely. <laughs> probably will. The first, the first five volumes of the Judge Dredd case files, it's all any well-stocked household needs. <laughs> Uh, Anna, what about you? Um, I've just finished reading The Cazalet Chronicles by Mary Jane Howard. And it's about a family from pre-Second World War uh, right up to the 60s. And you follow the same family. And I absolutely loved it. It's because it tackles lots of issues that were around then, but nobody spoke about. So it's, it's about abortion and about gay rights and even a bit of incest in there and that kind of thing. So that's really, really good. Uh, and I've just finished it, so I'm a little bit bereft because I feel like I now have to find a new set of books to read. Marie. Uh, I have literally just started reading Don't Read This Book If You're Stupid by Tabor Fisher, <laughs> uh, which is a novel. Like, it sounds like a weird sort of, you know, re re yeah, a, a weird non-fiction book. It's actually a novel. So I, I can't really talk about it yet because I'm literally, I think, about something. I started it today, so 16 pages in. Um, but, you know, so, so I, I read earlier this year, I stumbled upon quite randomly uh, this book called Under the Frog uh, by Tibor Fisher as well, and which is about this uh, team of kind of like young basketball players traveling across Hungary in the 50s. Um, and, and it's that insanely good mix of like really really dark at times but also incredibly like incredibly properly laugh out loud funny um and yeah and i really really enjoyed it you know one of those books you finished and you're like oh i, f I feel offended that i'm no longer reading this like you know <laughs> um and, and yeah and i was just in a secondhand bookshop the other day and i saw uh, another book by fisher so i thought well fine i'll um yes yeah, so i've got high hopes i really hope it's um as good as the other one nice well i've been audio booking more than old school booking lately i've got a one which is a, a book warning i started listening to the vampire lestat which is the follow-on to interviews with the vampire and uh yeah can't say i've enjoyed it lestat <laughs> ends up in a in a rock and roll band called satan's oh, night no. out and it's sort of really in a oh, weird God. meta way re refers to interview with the vampire 
Yeah, not for me. And then, but then to be really highbrow, I've been listening to uh, The Prince by Niccolò Machiavelli, so I can hopefully find out, you know, when people say Machiavelli and if they're if they're using it rightly or wrongly as much as I can. If you would like a, a traditional book at some point, I've got a really cool one I read earlier this year that uh, compares uh, Machiavelli's essays and stuff with the political situation in Italy at the time. Oh, very nice. Um, so it actually really puts it into context, and it's it, it's weirdly funny. Um, but cool. yeah, Florence was very bad at fighting, like insanely <laughs> bad at fighting. <laughs> and on that note, it is the end of the Bunker Podcast. Thanks for joining us, Animation. Thank you. And what Y episode are you most looking forward to coming out that hasn't yet? Oh, do you know what? The one about whether it's good to be bad. That was a really, really interesting one. Um, I'm not going to tell you the answer, but it's it's an excellent episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm yeah. looking forward to that too. It's with a friend of the bunker, Richard Stevens, who was on a, a little while ago with me. He's a very interesting interviewee, isn't he? That's the one. Absolutely, yeah. Really good research. And thank you to Marie LeConte. Thank you. And see you in the office, Andrew Harrison. Get back to work, Jarvis. <laughs> Listeners, thank you for listening. We will be back tomorrow with another edition of The Bunker. Remember, it's your contributions that keep The Bunker bunkering, so please do think about supporting us on Patreon. For just £3 a month, it gets you early ad-free episodes and helps keep the lights on at Podmasters Towers. See the link in the show notes to sign up or search Bunker Patreon Podcast. I'm Jacob Jarvis. Thank you for listening to The Bunker Panel Show. See you next time. The Bunker was written and presented by Podmasters Managing Editor Jacob Jarvis, with guests Marie LeConte, Anna Machin, and Podmasters Group Editor Andrew Harrison. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. Music was by Kenny Dickinson, artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.